Hello, welcome to Eyes for Ears, your ophthalmology OCAPS and Board of View podcast. We're your hosts, Ben Young and Andrew Powell. Just a reminder that these podcasts are meant for medical education purposes only, not to diagnose anything on anybody's eye. Each week, we take a high-yield topic and talk about the why and the how. Uh, Andrew, what are we talking about this week? This week, we are talking about vitreous hemorrhage, which, as an entity in and of itself, there's a couple things to talk about with it, but it does pop up in a lot of other um, diagnoses. And I think you're going to start us off with a quick high-yield differential first of for vitheme. Is that right, Ben? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, just... This is kind of, kind of part of one of our chief complaint series where we're going to talk about, I mean, I guess this isn't a chief complaint, it's more of a differential um, episode, but you know, we won't talk too much about the pathophysiology of vitreous hemorrhage, but more about how to try to diagnose the cause of it, because it's a fairly common consult, um, especially in the emergency department, and what to do with it. So if you see a vitreous hemorrhage in the ED, the top five things that it could be just by frequency are one, I'll let you think that's right. If you thought proliferative diabetic retinopathy, just by volume, that's the most common cause in the United States. The next two through four are all are all related. So they're all related to um, a uh, to a vitreous attachment. So the second most common is a retinal tear caused by usually some kind of vitreous detachment that causes the retinal tear and breaks a blood vessel. Then it's just a hemorrhagic PVD. So that's a vitreous detachment where you get a hemorrhage without a fr- um, an actual break in the retina. And then lastly, it would be a retinal attachment that's regmatogenous, you know, essentially through the same mechanism. So the number one thing you should think about is proliferative diabetic retinopathy. Then two through four are all related to some kind of retinal tear or posterior vitreous attachment. Then, you know, uh, it's a kind of a distant five is neovascularization due to a retinal vein occlusion. Which we did an episode on already. We did. Yeah. Go back to that episode, which is, <laughs> I don't know what number it is, but you can Google it. Um, uh, but so, you know, if, if, you know, you're a new resident and you're seeing some of the vitreous hemorrhage, those are like the top things to think about. Now, that is not comprehensive, which is what we're going to talk about with the rest of this episode. So broadly speaking for vitreous hemorrhage, the way that I try to remember it, because there's so many different causes of a vitreous hemorrhage, are to break it down into four categories. So the first two are either a tear in a native vessel, so a tear in a vessel that is supposed to be in the eye. The second big category is a tear of a neovascular vessel. So that means that they have some source of neovascularization that causes vitreous hemorrhage. And we'll go into that differential in a bit. The other two that don't fit neatly into those categories, so I'll mention them, we'll, we'll kind of start off with them because if you don't think about them first and you're going to forget them, are Tursen syndrome and a macroaneurysm. So first let's talk a little bit about Tursen syndrome. Uh, Andrew, do you want to give us a brief summary about what, um, how, how it presents? Sure. So... Uh- in Tursen syndrome, on exam, you see just hemorrhages everywhere, which can include vitreous hemorrhage, just that suspended in the vitreous itself. But there can also be bleeding layered, you know, just subretinally within the retina itself, and then even pre-retina, just kind of right in between the hyaloid interface and the uh, and the actual retina. Now, the 
clinical context and the reason this happens to people, it's because they actually have a rapid increase in their intracranial pressure. So these are going to be patients who are on the floor or on the unit who just recently had a stroke or something, hemorrhagic and hemorrhagic stroke. It's this rapid increase in intracranial pressure that actually kind of you can imagine contributes to a congestion of the vast of the venous outflow. All the uh, tributary veins just bust wide open and start leaking and bleeding. I, I don't know if the mechanism of tersens is a hundred percent like a, understood. You know, a shut case, yeah. but I think that's the best mechanism that most people agree with. Yeah. You know, I I think there's there's been some thought that it's communication of blood in the uh, cerebral spinal fluid oh, into the so retinal I, space. I wasn't an idiot because I no, got that I idea think, somewhere and I kept thinking like, why was I, there's no way it can communicate through like. Right. I think there's the some, th- I don't know. The, the main thing for the clinician to know is that it's, you know, many layered um, uh, hemorrhage, including possibly vitreous hemorrhage that's related to um, typically a hemorrhagic stroke with associated increase in intracranial pressure. Okay. Um, when people are learning about tersens, uh, especially, you know, uh, more junior residents, it's often co- compared and contrasted immediately to Percher's syndrome, right? But yeah. But Percher's has actually no bearing in this episode, right? Because there's actually no vitreous hemorrhage in Percher's, I believe. Right. Classically, there's no purchase hemorrhage. Um, sorry, there's no vitreous hemorrhage. There can be intraretinal hemorrhages along with the cotton wool spots and the classic purchase flex that are seen in purchase, but none of those are on the vitreous. Well, you know, when we talk about purchase in the future, we'll come back and talk about how it's distinct from Tersen's again, but sorry to kind of derail your um, bigger no, differential. Um, But yeah, placing vitreous hemorrhage in a big differential tree, Tursen syndrome is one of the possibilities. But, you know, get us back on track from my wanderings, Ben. What else could vitreous hemorrhage present categorically in? Yeah, um, macroaneurysms is one of the differentials that doesn't fit neatly in the two broader categories that we're going to go into more detail in a bit. You know, so these are dilatations of a typically a retinal artery. Uh, you know, they're, they're pretty complicated. There's a couple types of them. Uh, the thing to know, though, is that they can cause hemorrhage in all layers of the retina, just kind of like we mentioned, turns can be subretinal, intraretinal, and preretinal as well. Uh, so keep your ears tuned for the macroaneurysm episode, which we'll probably do next or uh, next one or two weeks. But that is one of the differentials. So, okay, so we just went through those two weird ones first because they don't fit neatly into the other categories. So now we'll get back into the categories of that it has to be from a tear of a native vessel or a tear of a neovascular vessel. So I like those two as big, broad categories. It's, to be honest with you, not how I've thought of it before. Yeah, I just think it's easier to remember because especially when you have problems that have huge differentials like vitreous hemorrhage, I think if you organize it, then it's easier to at least start to narrow things down. Hmm. So we already talked about the major causes of vitreous hemorrhage from a tear of a native vessel. Andrew, are there any other causes besides, you know, something like a retinal tear um, or a hemorrhagic PVD that can, that can cause um, a vitreous hemorrhage um, from a tear of a native vessel? Yeah, you know, if, if what's being torn is your own native stuff, then the differences in what could do that are just the mechanism of injury then, and unfortunately that includes things like trauma. Um, 
Yeah, of course, unfortunately, shaken baby syndrome is definitely part of this category too. And um, you tied in something here that I was like digging through the indices for avulsion of prepapillary loop. I, you know, honestly never thought about prepapillary loops and how they could just be avulsed until I saw the this poor, here. The poor, poor ignored prepapillary loop. Yeah, no, I mean, you know, you can have. Um, a, a loop of blood vessel that kind of emanates into the vitreous space from the optic nerve. And if you have enough trauma, in theory, sometimes these things can tear and evolve and cause a vitreous hemorrhage. So that's like a native vessel that just happened to kind of grow. Um, you know, I, th I think it can be both a retinal artery or vein that can grow kind of up and into the vitreous space before diving back into the optic nerve like it's supposed to. Um, and, you know, with enough horses, these can break. So if you have a real mystery case, you can consider that perhaps the patient had a prepapillary loop. And I believe, I have, I mean, I'll be honest, this is super rare. I haven't seen one. But I believe you should still see like the trunk of it if it were to happen like after kind of the debris settles. Hmm. And I guess to round out the tear of a native vessel through different mechanisms, uh, if you just bear down real hard and Valsalva, your vessels burst open, maybe that could be a cause too, right? Yeah, super rare. Hmm. I mean, Valsalva is common. I mean, you know. Most of us fell salva like what twice a day? Is that what the average number of times people poop is? <laughs> what's the I don't know what the average what's the Rome criteria and how often you're supposed to whatever. The Valsalva yeah, is probably like Valsalva. Valsalva read not we can't dive into not, <laughs> potty humor. This time on poop for ears. Okay. Uh, oh, that sounds real gross. Wow. Uh, um, yeah. All right, all right, all right. Uh, um, did you want to? Yeah, th this is like definitely by exclusion. In theory, should be bilateral. Like this is, uh, <laughs> this is something that can happen, but usually under very, like specific circumstances. Okay, so um, all those things are pretty intuitive. At least you got what you got, and then they can break because of different things. But then, what if there's something that you didn't originally have? These neovascular vessels that come about for different reasons, right? You're basically running down a differential diagnosis of neovascularization then, right? Exactly. Yeah. So that the difference for neovascularization should be your different should be on your differential for a vitreous hemorrhage. Hmm. Um, you know, there's many causes. We already mentioned that the two most common are proliferative diabetic retinopathy and a retinal vein occlusion. Yeah. But anything else that can cause um um uh, neovascularization can do it too. So, you know, one way to organize this is that vitamin D mnemonic, uh, you know, basically a systems-based mnemonic, you know, the one I learned in med school is vitamin D where each thing is a different system. So vascular, ischemic, traumatic, autoimmune, metabolic, infectious, neoplastic, um, and then developmental. So, you know, you can organize it that way if you want, you know, so if you were to do that, then in terms of vasculars, most of these diabetic retinopathy, Vascular occlusion, sickle. Yeah, we'll call the vascular. No, sickle, sickle yeah. yeah. I mean, in one of the late stages yeah, like of sickles, problem. right? Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, just in terms of in, in the vitamin C paradigm, but oh, yeah. Hmm. Um, yeah, sickle, um, yeah, I don't know. Sickle retinopathy <laughs> and hypertensive retinopathy. Oh, and then also, in theory, retinal artery occlusion, though it's for some reason very rare for those to develop neovascularization. And then the big one is ocular ischemic syndromes. And then another one is I for infectious. Really for infectious, it had to be a, to cause neovascularization. It would have to cause some vasculitis with the infectious cause. So we won't go too much into that. We'll come back to vasculitis later. 
trauma we kind of talked about with the other large group for the differential. The one thing to mention, though, is if someone has trauma and a vitreous hemorrhage, that doesn't mean they had one of the, you know, that doesn't mean have a retinal tear. If you have neovascular vessels, especially if you have an intact hyaline face, then when you have trauma, it can move the hyaline face and shear those very fragile neovascular vessels. So it can kind of set up a bomb that was destined to go off later, if that makes sense. So trauma doesn't, with vitreous hemorrhage, does not mean it's not neovascularization. It definitely can be. A for autoimmune would be inflammatory in this paradigm. So vasculitis is basically it. So like all the different causes of vasculitis, especially if they're occlusive, like an Eels disease, um, can, can cause neovascularization. Then um, there's metabolic, you know, you can call that diabetes if you want, if that's easier for you to remember, but we, we can kind of skip that. The next eye is for iatrogenic. The big one is radiation retinopathy. Um, we talked about that in our last episode, radiation. So you can check that out, but that's definitely, uh, you know, it sort of acts a lot like diabetic retinopathy, so it can definitely cause neovascularization. And neoplastic, um, you know, melanomas can cause um, neovascularization in certain circumstances, as well as the sequela of treating them. So you can definitely consider some kind of neoplasm in the eye. And then lastly, C, congenital. This is where I kind of put ROP, so retinopathy prematurity, and its relatives, like incontinentia pigmenti, which is going to look a lot like ROP, and familial exudative vitreo retinopathy, and things like nori disease. These all belong in a group together, which is probably also worthy of its own episode, but these are congenital causes of vascular abnormalities, which can lead to neovascularization. That's a lot. <laughs> but but it is very helpful to know that it's the same differential for neovascularization and right. vitreum. And your right. explanation for the mechanism of that, the very fragile, like the increased susceptibility to even mild shearing forces due to that terrible endothelial support, I guess, is good. Yeah, pit lack of the, yeah, lack of parasites. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Everyone underestimates the parasites. Everybody else just thinks you're talking about bugs and worms. <laughs> yeah, I know. The, yeah, if it wasn't clear, pericyte, P-E-R-I-C-Y-T-E-S. <laughs> I'm not talking about like cystrocytosis or something crazy. <laughs> uh, um, I am going yeah. to just throw in a fun pop quiz question for you, Ben. Hit, I, hit us. When you gave me the script, I was like, oh, I got I to gotta do something interesting. Does aspirin oh. increase the risk of getting or having a vitreous hemorrhage? In the setting of anything, diabetes. sure, oh, diabetes. In anything, though. sure. But yeah, in the it, setting of diabetes specifically, because that is giving away the answer a little bit. Oops. Does aspirin? No, it doesn't. <laughs> oops. So you you were reading my mind. Um, what is the study that proved that? The ETDRS study. I just scrolled to the second page. <laughs> the ETDRS study. <laughs> yeah. The only reason I bring it up is like. Um, I once had a consult as a resident where somebody was on like um, anticoagulants, right? And the primary team asked me like, can we continue warfarin or is that going to do any weird things to the person's eye? I was like, that's a very oddly weird specific question. The only evidence is for aspirin and even that doesn't do anything. So probably continue warfarin and fine, but they, I don't know, they made it a huge deal. So uh, the only thing that can... Uh, propagate bleeding that we know about with evidence to say is aspirin and the answer is no it doesn't in the context of diabetes anyway right but i feel like you can probably just generalize that (laughs) whatever yeah i think most retina specialists say like yeah you know you need warfarin stay alive 
should probably do that. Mm. But um, yeah, except around the time of surgery, depending on the surgery, right? Yeah. So I got another pop quiz for you, Ben. Uh oh. Um, and because, you know, I was getting bored over here in another retina episode, got to throw some glaucoma into this. Yeah, what is the crazy. kind of glaucoma you get from a longstanding vitreous hemorrhage? If, you know, you, you, don't, always, you don't always get this. Um, but supposedly ghost cell glaucoma is one of these random exotic flavors of glaucoma. And this is another one, you know, talking about... Tersons always being matched and paired or spoken of at the same time as perchers. Ghost cell glaucoma is always talked about in the same breath as hemolytic glaucoma. And it's really easy to like, because there's barely a difference between them, really. The uh, difference, what is the difference and what it exactly are these things? In ghost cell glaucoma, you have all these red blood cells that are kind of floating forward off the vitreous into the anterior chamber. And then they get degenerated. They, I guess if they were actually red blood cells, normal red blood cells, they'd be deformable enough and pliable enough to get through the, tri- the trabecular meshwork. But the degenerated forms of them just sort of get stuck in the trabecular meshwork. So the, you have the whole IOP stuff and uh, eventual glaucoma. In hemolytic glaucoma, it's like a really just silly, um, almost semantic difference. But... Uh, Supposedly, you should be able to see these degenerated RBCs in ghost cell on gonioscopy. In hemolytic, you don't see anything, no matter if you're like the world's most eagle-eyed gonioscopist. And uh, that's because in hemolytic, those RBCs aren't just degenerated. They've been totally hemolyzed already, and they've been broken up, and they're gone. But they still cause problems in that TM. Sorry. Nice. All right. Don't be sorry. I will. uh, I love it. Not I actually, I actually like, <laughs> I actually like glaucoma. I don't tell anyone. Okay, I don't tell any of your friends, but I actually do like glaucoma. Okay, um, yeah, I think. Okay, so th- those are the categories of, um, you know, the broad categories of causes of vitreous hemorrhage. The last thing to think about is whether or not what you're seeing is actually vitreous hemorrhage. You know, sometimes it's a little bit hard to tell whether something like uh, the hemorrhage is red or not, or maybe you think it's a vitreous hemorrhage that's dehemoglobinized, so it's become yellow, so it's kind of settled on the bottom of the eye. But, you know, when you're seeing someone with vitreous debris, even if you think it's hemorrhage, always consider, is it actually vitritis? So is this actually inflammatory material, i.e. from endophthalmitis or, um, you know, an inflammatory condition? Or even it could have possibly be lymphoma. So this is something, you know, sometimes you can see a vitreous hemorrhage and boom, it's definitely vitreous hemorrhage. But if you have doubt, is this vitreous material actually vitreous hemorrhage, consider an alternative. Perhaps it's, we don't even belong to vitreous hemorrhage episode. You know what I mean? So that's the last thing to think about. <laughs> you see someone with that. Thanks. Good caveats. And um, I guess we can move on then to now that you see these things, you've kind of pieced out what the differential could be, no matter what it's coming from, how do you treat vitreous hemorrhages, Ben, or how do you approach the management of it, first of all? Right. And, you know, I think this is variant. Uh, I mean, like, go by what your local or your attending retina specialist or or, or whatnot does. I think this is a basic framework that, that hopefully most people can agree on is reasonable. So obviously step one is to do your best to try to determine what the cause is with your exam and with B-Scan if you need it. So 
I think because we talked, you know, to take us back to the beginning of the episode, the most dangerous, urgent thing that in general that could be the cause of a retinal, sorry, a vitreous hemorrhage is a retinal tear detachment. So you should try your best to be able to rule that out with your examined B scan. If you can't, then your management can vary. Some people push for early pars plane vitrectomy, especially if they have a lot of risk factors. You know, you have to kind of, um, you have to definitely examine the fellow eye very carefully for signs um, or hints for what could, could have caused a vitreous hemorrhage in the eye that has a problem. You know, some people will observe very closely. Um, some people will will pull the trigger for a pars plane vitrectomy and really probably depends on the patient and their relative risk for having retinal tear detachment. Otherwise, in general, you can observe to see if the hemorrhage will settle to give yourself a better idea of what's going on to institute other therapy. Um, I'll note that um, and sometimes, you know, these vitreous hemorrhages won't clear and you have to do a vitrectomy. I will note that it's better to do an early vitrectomy in someone with type 1 diabetes. And this is the result of another diabetic study, the DRVS, which found if you have a vitreous hemorrhage and the vision is 5200, so worse than 2400 vision, and someone with type 1 diabetes, then they deserve early vitrectomy. Um, and they found that this benefit was not found in people with type 2 diabetes. So that's an important thing to remember for OCAP purposes. You know, I think practically in modern practice, the pars plane vitrectomy techniques have improved compared to when the DRVS study was done. So some retina surgeons will just do the pars plane vitrectomy relatively early, even in type 2 diabetics. That's something to keep in mind when you're um, seeing a patient with vitreous hemorrhage. Otherwise, non-surgical management, the most simple thing is to have a patient keep their head a bit elevated. That lets the blood settle to the bottom of the vision, which not, include, not only improves their vision, but also your examination. And, and then broadly speaking, if the cause is a neovascularization, which is that kind of biggest category we were talking about, it's some combination of panretinal photocoagulation and anti-VEGF. And uh, here's where I lay my trap card. What? Ben, what color of laser is said to pass through Vitheem the best? That one is red. I have never understood, like, why or whatever, but uh, you're the optical physics wonder oh, God. kid. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Just... Um, you don't have to answer that. But uh, but actually, uh, no, I don't even know. Like, it's been a while since I remember, like, I did PRP. Is the laser actually red or is it? Green? No, it's green. It's green. Yeah. Uh, well, okay. And I mean, at the Yale Eye Center, we had the Pascal laser, the pattern. Um, actually, I don't, I, it's, it's an acronym, which I should know. But we have the Pascal laser at the Yale Eye Center. Yeah. Um, and as far as I know, most Pascal lasers can't change the color setting. Like there's, I think it's more old. Like I've seen models where you can change the the color setting, but oh, it's really? not. Yeah, they, they test. I love they test on this a lot, but mm. I think practically nowadays, most people don't have the machines that can't change yeah. the color. And like endo laser, at least I remember seeing that more often and that's green. Yeah, yeah. Green is, um, in terms of all commerce, is the best color for laser. I think the reason why the red laser is best is because it scatters the least in vitreous debris. It's the same principle for why stoplights are red. You know, the reason stoplights are red is because the longer wavelength diffracts, not diffracts. Scatters. Scatters, thank you. You're the best. Scatters through Less. things like fog the least. So that's why, you know, if it's a foggy day, you can still see um, a red light 
relatively easily compared to the green light. I mean, you can test this yourself when next time you, it's a foggy day and you're <laughs> looking at a uh, traffic light. It is the same principle for, for PRP. Wow. So because the color red was truly the safest color to use, it became anonymous with the signal for danger. How, how culturally how interesting. irrational and unjust. Yeah, is, is that, <laughs> now I, I'm not, I misuse this. Is that irony? Um, yeah, I think so. Where something well, is supposed irony. to have an effect and then kind of uh, counterintuitively or weirdly has a different effect than what you expected. Yeah. yeah. Whatever. Neat. Anyway. Um, irony like blood. I am which totally is also, Which just is also irony. To, oh my goodness. <laughs> and that's all we've got. Oh my God. It's been so long. It uh, snuck up on me. No, that's not all we got. I, I forgot to mention one thing about anti-venture. One thing about anti-venture. Oh, I'm still dying it, over here. Uh, it, it, okay, so okay. It, if so, if you have someone with a vitreous hemorrhage and you're like pretty damn sure that they that it's due to diabetic retinopathy, and you want to help clear the vitreous hemorrhage faster by injecting anti-VEGF, which is something that many people do. I mean, that's reasonable. But the main thing is to make sure they don't have a tractional diabetic retinal detachment because there's this theoretical problem. Well, not theoretical. It's been documented to happen. Problem called crunch syndrome where those tractional attachments will um, fibrose and then become worse and possibly involve the macula. My impression is that there's still debate in the retina community about how real the problem of crunch syndrome is. But for, you know, boards, OCAP purposes, and even if you're seeing a patient, at least consider that possibility and examine for tractional attachments before you go buck wild with the anti-VEGFs. Yeah. Practically speaking, again, from a glaucoma perspective, it means that, uh, you know, about three quarters of the time when retina consults us for a possibly emergent tube for neovascular glaucoma, um, we might be able to say, oh, just do anti-VEGF and we'll deal with it tomorrow. And then the other quarter of the time, they'll say, no, crunch syndrome, do it now. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> yeah. So as a brief summary, we talked about the top five causes of um, of vitreous hemorrhage. Oh my God. So as in summary, the top five causes of vitreous hemorrhage are proliferative diabetic retinopathy. Then two through four are um, all have to do with retinal tear. So retinal tear, hemorrhagic PVD or retinal attachment, and neovascularization from a retinal vein occlusion. Then we talked about the broad categories for um, vitreous hemorrhage, which include a tear of a native vessel or a tear of a neovascular vessel, and then the oddballs, which are Tursen syndrome and a macroaneurysm. Finally, we talked about treatment, which is basically consider whether you have to do an early parse plane of vitrectomy if you have high suspicion there's a retinal tear that you cannot identify or um, or even a retinal detachment. Uh, otherwise, treat the underlying cause Ge in general, whether that's PRP or anti-VEGF. And that's all we have for this week. If you like what you heard, you can follow us on Twitter at Eyes4Ears with the number four. And we have our website, Eyes4Ears.com with the number four. If you'd like to support the podcast, then a rating review on iTunes or wherever you found our podcast is very helpful. And uh, we hope to see you next week. I hope everyone takes care during these hard times. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.